This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Lerner, from the University of Southern California. Today, it's my pleasure to be speaking with Paul DeBryden, Assistant Professor in the Department of Germanic Languages and Literatures at the University of Virginia. Professor DeBryden holds a PhD in Germanic Studies from the University of California at Berkeley, and he's written about and teaches on a range of topics in modern German cinema, art, and literature, including the book that we'll be speaking about today, The Hygienic Apparatus, which appeared earlier this year with Northwestern University Press. Paul is speaking to us from Berlin. I'm very pleased to have him here today. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Um, it's, it's nice to be here. Great. I thought we could start, as we usually do in these podcasts, by giving you an opportunity to say a little bit about, about yourself, about your, your path to the field that you've ended up in, and specifically where the, um, this research agenda came from and you know, how, how you got interested in the things that you're interested in. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, it is a college town, but my, my parents are not academics. Uh, my, my dad's an auto engineer. That might explain some of the, the like car interests that you see in the book. Um, but I, I studied German since middle school. You could still, uh, you could still do that in Michigan at that time. I don't know if that is still the case. Um, but I, I just, uh, that's how I got started in the language and, um, took it through college where I developed an interest in, film um, kind of generally, but then started started um, uh, developing an interest in German film specifically toward the end. Um, and right after college, uh, graduating uh, at the University of Michigan, um, I worked as a kind of uh, assistant for um, my mentor there who was uh, kind of hosting um, an event called the German Film Institute, uh, which was a kind of long running workshop um, put on by uh, Anton Case and Eric Rentschler um, of Berkeley and Harvard, respectively, um, uh, which was it was a kind of week long workshop for uh, academics working in German cinema. Um, and as as a kind of assistant to my mentor, who was was the organizer that year, um, I I 
you know, first got to like see a bunch of things. Um, the topic was uh, unknown Weimar, and so, uh, and we had you know we ordered a bunch of um, films, you know, like rolls of film from the Kinematheque here, uh, and and screened them in Ann Arbor. Um, and so I got to see a lot of very strange and fascinating things. Um, and and then second. Um, I got to sit in on the on the discussions that were happening, the workshop discussions um, that were happening that week, and uh, got a taste of of kind of what it was like to um, be in a room with with people who knew a whole lot about um, something that I found really interesting, um, and it was just a really exciting um, kind of galvanizing event for me. Um, I ended up uh, after a year, a DAD year in Berlin, going to to Berkeley to study with um, Anton Case, um, and uh, really focused on uh, German film history and Weimar Weimar era film in particular. Um, now, like just generally, like how I kind of got to the the topic of the book, um, I would say my my kind of enduring fascination is with cinema as like a perceptual environment, right? As a kind of like space that um, uh, makes possible certain kinds of uh, aesthetic experiences. Um, and thinking about that. Um, in the early 20th century, kind of in relation to other modern, like built or designed spaces, whose whose like sensory characteristics kind of fascinated the critics of that time. So you could think of like um, Georg Zimmel writing about the the um, the Gewerbe Ausstellung, or you know Benjamin on the on the arcades or the urban street, um, Krakauer, who is like a kind of connoisseur of all of these kinds of different spaces of of modernity. So like these spaces that um, who's like designed or organized, you know, built character, um, seem to like unlock something about modernity as, as such. Um, and so this is kind of how I think of, uh, of the cinema, like in relation to that, like geography of modern, um, modern spaces or spaces of, of modernity. Um, and then I think like what I'm trying to do in the book is kind of link that idea of a cinema um, to a more kind of environmental thinking. So linking this like idea of a perceptual environment um, to thinking about like material environments and kind of ecologies of, of modernity um, and trying to think those two things together in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I found so fascinating about the book was the way it's working on multiple levels. And as you say, you're really look, investigating the cinema space as a kind of environment or perceptual experience but then you you analyze the content of films as well but the and but you know the medium and 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 kind of conditions of their production and it's i to so one of the things that i think makes this book so exciting is that it's very tight but also kind of radiates out in in all sorts of directions so i i wondered if you could talk about especially for people who haven't had a chance to read the book yet um, what you mean by hygienic apparatus and, you know, how this category works in, in, in your analysis. Sure. Um, so, so that word apparatus is meant to kind of resonate in two, two different ways. Uh, and I'll try to try to explain that as I go. Um, but, but maybe first to, to give a sense of the idea of hygiene that I'm, that I'm working with. Um, I think, you know, it's a very like, historically loaded word that has a lot of different um, resonances for people who might you know be familiar with it from different contexts right so things like social hygiene or uh, racial hygiene 
Um, so what I'm focusing on in the book is um, what historian Alphonse Labich calls experimental hygiene, um, uh, or uh, a phrase I like from another historian, um, Dita Mekachi, she says that uh, this form of hygiene was the physiology of the everyday spaces the body occupied. So it was about a kind of hygiene that is thinking about material environments and how they affect the health of the people who live, work, travel within them, right? So it's about kind of quantifying all these environments, the home, the street, the workplace, the school, um, the city it's, itself, like thinking uh, kind of at different scales and uh, inve- uh, examining those things or analyzing them in terms of like certain kinds of environmental disorder that can harm health, um, thinking about pollution, air pollution, water pollution, um, uh, but also like, you know, the intensity of light or, uh, you know, how, how well a space is ventilated, all these kinds of things that can affect an environment. Um, and, uh, and so it's trying to examine and analyze these spaces and then make them, make them healthier, basically. So it has a kind of um, environmental approach to, to health. Um, so it's not medicine, right? Medicine is uh, like treating individual patients, you know, after something happens. Um, this is thinking about like the collective environments that we inhabit and how those, how those affect health, um, kind of the level of the overall population. But now, so what I mean by an apparatus, um, I think I, I came to this pretty slowly, um, but I was looking for a way to evoke the, the real huge range of things that this could include, right? So there were all sorts of little sub-disciplines of hygiene, like school hygiene, um, uh, you know, industrial hygiene, hygiene of the home. Um, you know, if you look at a uh, the guide to the 1911 uh, hygiene exhibition in Dresden, for instance, like it has a whole huge range of different kinds of spaces that it's that it has exhibits on, right? Um, and so this, uh, I, I take this Foucauldian um, definition of apparatus. It's a translation of the French dispositive, um, which he calls a, a heterogeneous ensemble consisting of discourses, institutions, architectural forms, regulatory decisions, laws, administrative measures, scientific statements. Um, and it's a kind of system of relations between all of these different elements. Um, and hygiene had all of these things, right? It had different forms of expertise from the sciences, um, uh, and kind of different kinds of like regulatory uh, bodies. Um, and then it was applying those kinds of expertise to the various spaces that made up modernity. Um, and so it's not, you know, it's not a very, it's not a super coherent sort of like project, but it's a kind of project that has a, a certain loose coherence, but spread across a very, you know, a variety of different institutions and sciences and, um, and endeavors like a lot, uh, most often like at the municipal, municipal level, right? Um, and so these, these various kinds of uh, hygiene and hygienic practice and hygienic knowledge form a kind of dispositive or apparatus that I think does have some, you know, some coherency that we can call a kind of like modernizing project. Um, uh, and it, it was a way that kind of modernization was thought about, right, to, to kind of make the city hygienic was to make it modern, right, to uh, kind of make it civilized in a certain way. Um, so uh, that that I think is uh, maybe the the best way I could describe this uh, concept of the hygienic apparatus. Thank you. That's a, a very a very clear description. I I I was going to wait and ask you about this later, but it it's hard to listen to this discussion of 
the operation of hygiene in this period and not think about terms like social hygiene and racial hygiene, um, which, of course, have gotten so much attention in the historiography of eugenics and so-called race science. And so I I wondered if um, you could think a little bit about, as you do toward the end of the book, about how those regimes fit into uh, this kind of larger dispositive or hygienic apparatus that you've discussed here. Sure. I mean, so, so like, as you say, those have gotten, I would say, more scholarly attention, at least in the kinds of like scholarship that I'm, that I'm um, in dialogue with. Um, and so there are these different varieties of, of hygiene. Um, and we, we tend to think of it now more as like a body focused sort of discipline. Um, and so I wanted to emphasize this, this environmental aspect, which was really important um, starting kind of in the late 19th century and really, I think, was kind of the dominant uh, meaning of, of the term at that point. Um, but of course, you have these other versions of, uh, of hygienic practice. Um, and I think they have, they have sometimes like synergistic relationships to this form of environmental hygiene. So um, you could say uh, you, you have a racial hygienist who argues, well, um, it's good to have healthy environments because that will like, you know, uh, improve the fitness of the race or something like this. Um, but then there's ways in which they're, they're less compatible. So you had, you know, very... Um, uh, you know, strong disagreements uh, between experimental and racial hygienists um, about like who constitutes the population, what what it is, you know, what is hygiene for? Is it meant to kind of foster the health of everyone or kind of like focus on those who uh, are most productive and that, those sorts of like distinctions among um, deserving and undeserving peoples and that sort of thing. Um, experimental hygiene had a lot of uh, kind of uh, collaboration, I would say, with with social hygiene. So thinking about, for instance, um, uh, working class housing as a major site of intervention for um, for these kinds of hygienic uh, projects. Um, the 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 goal of kind of making the um, the living spaces of working class people hygienic involved thinking about not just the the environments, the kind of like the Mietshäuser or, or rental barracks as the kind of like classic topos of that, but um, also, of course, experts like examining the sociology of the home spaces um, and like monitoring them for who is, you know, sleeping next to whom and um, uh, who is, who is uh, drinking and who is you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, they, they work together, I would say, in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, I, I think it uh, it is important to, like, bring out this environmental dimension, at least from my perspective, um, to kind of place it within, I would say, like a history of modern ways of thinking about environments, Um we, we tend to think of like environmentalism often in terms of like conservation movements and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think this is a really important way that, that, um, that people thought about uh, environments and um, I think continues to operate in a certain way to this, you know, to this day um, and is worth bringing it out um, and, and seeing how it uh, interacted with other kind of modern phenomena. I'm, gl- I'm glad you mentioned that because that's, you know, because you use the word environment um, so frequently in the book um, in, in different ways at, at times, I think it's, and given our current moment uh, now, it's kind of hard to read the book without thinking about the environment in this kind of more um, ecological sense that we think about it now and um, thinking about, 
about Umgebung or the, you know, the, the different terms you can use in, in German to express that. And I am kind of wondering where the, what, for lack of a better word, we might call it the ecological movement or the conservation movement. I mean, is that a complete on a completely different trajectory? And kind of here, you're much more concerned with regulation of the urban topography, the household, the street, the cinema, those kinds of spaces. And or, or, or are there places where these different discourses kind of intersect and work together? Um, yeah, no, they're, I don't think they're 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 really separate. Um, at least. Uh, it, the, the the historian the environmental historian Joachim Rodkow kind of situates um, the beginnings of environmental environmentalism also in this in this period of kind of like the sanitation movement specifically in in the UK for instance um, and and I think what the 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 thing it shares with um, what we think of as a more kind of modern environmentalist movement um, is this concern with the effects of industrialization on the environment and on health, right? Um, so think of something like Silent Spring, which is uh, which is like thinking about the effects of modern agricultural practice on you know on the health of both like people and and animals. Um, you know, it's a uh, not too far a field to think about um, environmental or kind of environmentally oriented hygiene from the early 20th century in this way. Um, but they're thinking about it mostly in urban contexts. So there are these kind of like environmental, um, uh, these bad environmental effects uh, that come out of industrialization and urbanization, um, and they're trying to manage them and control them. There's a sense that um, the environment is being degraded, um, and, it, and that is affecting social reproduction in some way, right? Like it's affecting the the, the health of our population and our, you know, specifically our laboring population. Um, and how can we how can we kind of manage those effects or mitigate them so that um, society and modernization kind of and kind of modern capitalism can continue continue at pace. Um, so there there is maybe a different emphasis than than kind of environmentalism. Uh, although there are different strains of modern environmentalism, some you know, some more accommodating of of capitalism, and some some less so, um, I would say. But this hygiene was definitely kind of in service of this like kind of project of capitalist modernity, and, and but trying to mitigate its impacts on uh, on the health of populations. That, that's really interesting, uh, really suggestive answer. Um, I wonder if we can see how kind of come down from the clouds a little bit and get into some specific examples and see how some of this is actually functioning right within films themselves or the, the experience of seeing films. And one, um, a, a lot of them, I, one thing that's interesting about the book, I think is that you deal with films that are familiar to people who have a German studies background, like Kula Vampa, for example, but also many films that one, unless one were a specialist in that particular area, they would have no reason to know existed, right? Like these traffic films and safety films and um, Strudel des Verkehrs in, 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 in the thick of the traffic, for example. Um, so I just wondered if we could talk about the any of these particular films or, or film-going experiences and kind of see how some of this functions in, the, in a particular context. And um, I'll get you, anywhere you want to go is fine with me. Um, I'm personally struck by the traffic films, as you can tell, but, um, but I'm happy to go any direction. Sure, yeah. I, I would say let's, we can uh, maybe get there by way of the, the space of the cinema itself, which was also a kind of space of tra- various kinds of traffic um, that were in need of 
in need of regulation, right? So, um, so in in the book overall, like I'm trying to think about the different ways in which this kind of encounter between um, you know hygiene from from the late 19th century encounters cinema and vice versa as as cinema develops in the early 20th century. Um, and the, the kind of first encounter between the two um, is around this space of the movie theater um, where uh, there's a lot of kind of anxiety uh, among uh, bourgeois and middle class, class critics about the space of the movie theater, right? It's associated with um, working class audiences, uh, female audiences. Um, and it's often described as a kind of space of contagion um, and kind of a space of dangerous dangerous kinds of material traffic. And so um, there's there's a desire to kind of regulate it in a certain way. Um, and so this, this you know, on one hand, this kind of anxiety about the, the movie theater as a space of contagion, um, which influences later thinking about um, how to make a healthy uh, cinema space. Um, but I think another, another way we can think about this uh, hygienic regulation of the theater is this concern about fires um, and concern about, you know, the, the theater as a, as a space of like fire danger. Um, and you can sort of chart gradually how uh, the, the various, you know, kinds of regulations grow up around the theater um, to, you know, treating it as a, a space of a kind of specific kind of danger, specifically like the projector fire, the, um, the projection room as like a, a particularly kind of dangerous space. Um, and it, it's sort of interesting to see how those, those regulations develop, right? On, on the one hand, um, they deal with the, the auditorium. So thinking about like um, how people are moving through the theater, um, how the seats are situated, how the exits are situated, um, how to kind of, you know, illuminate the exit signs, those sorts of things to make sure there's a kind of like safe and orderly um, environment or traffic through the, through the theater. Um, and, you know, those develop out of like older regulations around like theaters, uh, like traditional sorts of theaters. Um, but then, you know, the, the cinema has this specific technology of the, of the projector and the screen. Um, and so there needs to, the, 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 the uh, cinema becomes like its kind of own architectural genre in a, in a regulatory sense as the fire regular, you know, regulators like start to realize, okay, here's this space that needs controlling. So there's all sorts of regulations about um, what kinds of materials it can be built out of, you know, how the projector can be situated um, and, and built and, and so on and so forth. And so there's, that's a very like material way in which these kinds of like hygienic approaches to the environment are um, uh, are like, you know, influencing the ways that, that movie going happens. Um, so, uh, you know, as I said, there's a lot of concern about, uh, about traffic specifically, this word fair care comes up a lot, um, in, in various, in various ways. Um, we can, so we can think of that, uh, as a think as like a, about circulation of various, various forms of bodies and materials. Um, and, uh, later, you know, as film becomes more of an educational medium, um, we can uh, see like films concerned with other kinds of traffic uh, as they occur, like in the kitchen or in the home or in the street, right? Um, so I do look at this this uh, traffic safety film called Im Strudel des Verkehrs. Um, and so, you know, we might not think of like traffic safety as a like a hygienic 
um, concern necessarily. Um, but uh, you know, if we're thinking about what uh, what affects you know health and and life or death in the uh, in the modern city, like automobiles and um, modern forms of transportation are a big big factor. So um, the the same sorts of folks who were producing films about like uh, domestic hygiene, about how to how to keep your your home hygienic, um, we're producing films about traffic safety. Um, this particularly this uh, producer at the the medical film archive of the UFA kind of culture film division, um, uh, Tomala. Uh, he was writing uh, about how, like, we need to be thinking of of accidents and like work ac- work accidents and traffic accidents as part of this hygienic project. Um, and so we can we can read this like traffic safety film that's like telling people how to, uh, you know, how to behave properly in the in the urban street. Um, I, I think as part of this like project of environmentally oriented hygiene that is is trying to keep keep people safe. It's. Really fascinating that um, ha- I want to get back to traffic safety in a moment, but um, you know, having written about department stores in this period, I see so many fascinating parallels um, between the cinema space and the department store space, and the the concern with fires, the this kind of regulatory project of the what I, what I, I saw in my sources often this kind of notion of the human stream of, you know, channeling it from the street into the store through, you know, through the different displays and um, both as a kind of spur to more, you know, selling more stuff and more retail turnover, um, but also as a danger. And, you know, this human stream of, you know, even going back to 19th century novels like Zola, when there's a sale in the department store and the women can't contain themselves, right? There's this kind of hysterical mob that then drowns, you know, some of the uh, people who are less able to um, protect themselves. So I, I just wanted to kind of flag that because I found those parallels between cinema space and department store space, um, sites of spectacle, of a very gendered, right? I mean, mostly women, um, at least in some cinema situations, um, kind of a customer basis uh, connected to the growth of this consumer culture, this kind of Weimar consumer culture phenomenon. Um, I'm struck also by the transformation of the cinema from a site of danger into a site of sort of Aufklärung, uh, enlightenment, education. And is it, is there, because earlier in the book, you talk about this kind of miasma, you know, the, the environment of site of contagion. And you use the Faust film, I thought, very effectively to talk about some of the kind of this ca- capturing these, you know, these contaminants and so forth on the in the film itself. Um, but I wondered if you could sort of talk about that shift or that transition of the cinema as a site of danger to a site of education and enlightenment. Right. So, uh, you know, before World War One, you know, it's not really taken seriously as uh, as a uh, as an educational medium. Although there's some there's some people in this kind of cinema reform movement that are that are thinking about that. Um, what what really spurs that is this sense during the war uh, or this realization during the war that uh, other you know other uh, our, our sort of enemy countries are way ahead and and using film uh, for propaganda purposes in ways that uh, Germany 
uh, was very slow to do, um, but by the end of the war, kind of realized the the value of of film as a medium of propaganda um, and kind of mass communication. Um, and then that continues after the war, um, but is is kind of channeled toward this purpose of. Uh, national reconstruction and kind of reconstructing the like the body of the German people, right? So there's this sense that, I mean, there's not just a sense, but there's like malnutrition, there's disease, um, you know, there's there's uh, people coming back coming back wounded. Um, that the the body, the kind of Volkskörper, is is uh, in dire straits, um, and we need to kind of use all our all the means possible to kind of reconstruct this national body. Um, and so, film becomes part of that that endeavor. Um, and so, I'm looking at at the these specific films that deal more with. Um, environments or, you know, spaces of the, of the city. Um, but there's of course films about, you know, kind of sexual education, um, and other kinds of like bodily hygiene and that sort of thing. Um, and so there's, you know, a whole range of films that, um, have been looked at by others and, and I'm focusing on these, um, these, uh, these films on kind of various kinds of urban spaces. It's, it's, you know, having grown up, in a period where we were shown films about, you know, sex education, about drugs and what they can do to you about bicycle safety. I mean, it seems to me in some way that that whole genre must come out of the the moment that you're capturing here. Um, I believe that's right. I mean, I, I, uh, I know um, the historian Anya Laukuter, um who has, has written about a kind of comparative study of, of uh, educational films in the in the early 20th century, and I think there there's some kind of um, also like international connections there. Um, the the figure that I talked about wrote for this um, contributed to an international kind of educational cinema journal, um, I think in Britain, and so I think there is thinking across across uh, across the Atlantic as well. Um, about how to use these films in, in an educational context. Um, I did want to say that um, even though, you know, there is this boom in kind of educational film or, or what were called sometimes kulturfilme, um, there's, I think, still always a kind of suspicion of the, of the, the movies as being uh, too powerful or too seductive. And so um, that affects the form of these films um, insofar as they were often shown with lecturers, um, so someone who could kind of guide the audience's viewing of the film and kind of guide their interpretation of the film, right? You don't want to leave it just up to the up to the viewer to decide what it means for themselves, um, or you have in the film um, a kind of figure that mimics that lecturer function who's directly addressing the the audience, and so um, making you know reminding the audience like. Um, you're not here alone. Um, we are. Uh, we're kind of like monitoring your interpretation, and you know, remember your your duty to society, and, and so on and so forth. And so, um, there's always this fear that that people are going to kind of lose themselves in the in the movies, and that needs to be counteracted. Um, you know, either by a kind of external instance of a of a lecturer or uh, an internal figure that that serves a similar function. I, I was. Uh, one of the questions I had as I was reading was about kind of the audience um, for some of these films and whether people chose to see these films or if they were in situations where they're being shown them in schools or at their workplace. And I know that the, the Dusseldorf police, I think you said they re-edited the traffic film for their own purposes, but is, is it, I mean, can we, 
I, I can certainly understand how some of the more popular Weimar films that we hear about so much today still, um, how they could have that effect on an audience. But um, is are, are people sincerely concerned that traffic films and sexual enlightenment films are going to be too kind of t- titillating for the audience? And is there a, are people going to see those films voluntarily or are they being shown in schools and workplaces? Um, yeah, generally it's more of these non-theatrical contexts um, uh, like with the traffic film, I think the idea was to have it screened in in classrooms um, or for you know for school classes, um, and I, I don't I don't think there's a real serious fear that those are um, uh, the traffic film at least is is too kind of exciting, um, but there is a concern that like uh, I think at this time especially the police were very anxious about their their own image um, and wanting to maintain their own authority. And so there might be a fear that the, the kids are going to laugh at the police. <laughs> and so um, you want to like make sure that they are um, respecting authority properly. Now with the, the sexual education films, that's much more of a, um, uh, of an issue um, that this, this uh, worry that, that audiences aren't going for uh, educational purposes, but to um, because they're kind of sensational um, and, and want to, um, and that, yeah, this worry that the, the audience is using it in a kind of improper, improper way. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So there you need the sober figure, whether within the film or... Mm-hmm. Just to make sure nobody's, you know, having too much fun here. I, so it, the, the, the Foucauldian influence is clear here. And you've mentioned the dispositif um, kind of as the organizing principle for a lot of the, the work in this book. And you've also brought up a couple of historians and others as in, in the discussion as it's developed here. But I wondered if you could tell us more about the kind of theoretical influences that shaped you as a scholar and in particular the the work you did in this in this book yeah so uh, so certainly um i would say there's there's a lot of foucault in the background of this um and, and i think so part part of the project you could describe is like trying to think about um biopolitics from from an environmental perspective and kind of uh like thinking about approaches, modern approaches to the environment at, in relation to um, like a biopolitical project of the, of the population. Um, uh, and, and like how film like both fit into that project and then resisted it in certain ways or offered kind of space of space of resistance. Um, 
more generally, like I think I'm very I'm very influenced also by by what sometimes is called the the modernity thesis. Um, so this like thinking about modernity specifically, um, which uh, is you know was discussed a lot in in film studies uh, in the the kind of early two thousands. Um, and so, like uh, I. I emphasize the way that that both cinema and hygiene were kind of like modernizing forces or or um, ways in which modernity was experienced um, and the 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 ways that those those two things kind of play out or interact together um, and then finally like um, you know being at Berkeley uh, we we talked a lot about uh, the kind of like interaction between aesthetics and historical context. So kind of from a new historicist perspective. And so um, I, I don't want to call this, this book like a, in a kind of exhaustive historical account um, necessarily. Like I think it could go in various directions. Um, but what I'm concerned with, I think in the, the, the chapter specifically where I'm dealing with films and kind of thinking about um, how, how spaces are represented, I'm just very, I'm very concerned with the different ways in which, um, or, or kind of identifying specifically what kind of work a film is doing on what different levels within a very kind of concrete historical situation. Um, so how can we think about a film in relation to um, a particular historical context and historical discourses to identify the different kinds of work it's doing um, that you wouldn't really see otherwise? Um, and so uh, I look, I would say, at different kinds of ways films are doing work um, in, in different chapters, whether that's kind of pedagogical work um, or trying to shape shape uh, vision in certain ways or shape subjectivity in certain ways or experimenting, experimenting with different kinds of aesthetic materials like, you know, particulates like smoke and fog and that, and that sort of thing. Um, so trying to, um, yeah, think about the different levels on which a film is is working in relation to a, a very specific historical context. That makes a lot of sense, and it really gives a, a kind of a another way in which your work on these disparate films and these disparate contexts is all, you know, kind of unified. That there's a kind of seeing the film as doing a kind of work. Um, really allows you, I think, to range into quite different kinds of contexts and, and, and cinematic representations in, in ways that I don't see a lot in, I mean, maybe that says more about what I read, but uh, I, I was really um, struck and, and, and struck in a very positive way by, you know, the seeing your analysis of these very different kinds of materials. Um, I, I really, I thought that was one of the really fascinating um ways that this book operates. I, I, I can't help but ask you, um, given the focus on, on media and on, in particular here, I'm thinking, you know, back to the earlier parts of the book when, when you're writing about the kind of notions of the cinema as a space of danger and contagion, and you have those choice examples of, for example, uh, shutting down the movie theaters in Berlin during the influenza pandemic. So, I know that you did a lot of the writing or finishing of this book during the kind of height of the coronavirus pandemic. And I'm, I can't help but think about what it would have been like to be in lockdown, writing a book about, you know, managing 
managing environments, about the hygienic apparatus. And so could, could you reflect a little bit about that experience and about, you know, the, the century between the material you're writing about and the context in which you wrote about it and how things have changed or, or, or not changed in terms of media and environment? Sure. Um, I mean, I think, you know, obviously there, there are some of the kind of immediate resonances, right? Um, the, at the very beginning of, of covid uh, movie theaters were one place where, you know, they started in, you know, either shutting them down or instituting kind of distancing, requiring masks. Um, there was like a, a whole project of like how to kind of make a safe movie theater um, amid a, amidst a pandemic, right? And so this echoes these earlier discourses about pandemic uh, sort of cinemas as spaces of, of contagion. Um, and I think what... Uh, what like the the pandemic on on one hand makes just made us all very aware of was the spaces that we occupy um, and who is in them, how many people are in them, like who is uh, who is masked or not masked, and and so on and so forth. So we like are are suddenly very intensely aware of our of our material environments and maybe in ways that we would not have been before. Um, but on the other hand, I would say after, you know, after a couple of years now, um, what strikes me is, is the very just complete absence of a collective modernizing project, right? Um, there's no sense that we are going to like try to, uh, at least in the United States, um, improve our ventilation or uh, just kind of like modernize the spaces in which we exist in order to make this thing less dangerous. And we're just left with these sort of like individual hygienic stop gaps. Like you can wear a mask or you're for yourself or not. Um, and then we're not going to require anyone else to. And so um, I would say we, we have a very, uh, very weak um, hygienic apparatus that is not really, um, it's just not part of our horizon. Um, we're, we're, I think, all beaten down by kind of neoliberal disinvestment. Um, the state is, seems not very invested in the health of its population. Um, and so there's not a sense that we need to kind of modernize everything. Um, and so uh, I think in terms of media, what uh, occurs to me is thinking about um, you know, if, if the movie theaters were dangerous, like it, it was because they brought people together. They're like a space of collective space, right. Where everyone is kind of coming together for a, a single purpose. Um, but now that's not really the dominant form in which we consume, uh, moving images. Um, they're much more consumed at home, um, uh, more individually and more, uh, domestic spaces. And the, the way that then um, work and schooling also moved into those domestic spaces, I think really makes us aware of the kind of like um, hygienic function of media um, in, in our particular moment. So media being used as a kind of dispersive technology that can separate people and separate bodies while still enabling certain kinds of, of reproductive work, you know, label uh, schooling and, uh, and certain kinds of, of jobs that can happen in a dispersed way rather than in a kind of collective, collective space. Um, now, at the same time, these kinds of media are also bringing people together in, in different ways, um, you know, whether it's like ordering food on, on apps and, and that sort of thing or uh, whatever it is. But um, yeah, I would say that, you know, we can, all, we can start to think about how media are 
structuring our environments and our interaction with with kind of space um, and other people. Um, at least in this particular moment, we become aware of how that's happening and the different kind of hygienic uses of, of media. Um, I think that's partly they're partly they're so important to us because they're kind of easy to use, right? It's much cheaper to like uh, use Zoom than to uh, rebuild a, a university building so that it's properly ventilated, right? And so in kind of the absence of a real modernization of uh, our built spaces, we can kind of try to manage it with these more mediated forms of interaction. Um, yeah. I had, I, I had on a kind of reflexive level, I guess I had kind of thought of the hygienic apparatus as something to be feared. But um, even though I, of course, sympathize with many of its goals about safety and order and so forth, but, you know, now in the absence of a hygienic apparatus, where, as you say, we've kind of given up on controlling COVID and um, we've left it to individuals and there's a, there's nothing but chaos and randomness and kind of our larger response to it. I, I've, I've begun to suddenly see, you know, suddenly miss it in the face of this kind of neoliberal tyranny that we're in. Um, and <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there, there's been, I think, some 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 people um, uh, writing more in the public sphere have like drawn attention to kind of 19th century architectural technologies of of like of health um, and the the way buildings were were constructed um, so as to uh, be extremely well ventilated so that so that um, contagion didn't happen uh, as as readily. Um, so I think there has been some attention to these kinds of um, uh, of hygienic innovations that were pioneered during this this time of, of public health. Now, um, right, that's not to say that these weren't very kind of allied to this project of, of developing capitalist modernity. And so um, we would want to be careful about how much inspiration we take from them, right? Um, it was, uh, it, you know, if you look at these, something interesting I think about the films that I that I talk about, at least these more educational films, is um, they they uh, they demonstrate what orderliness or kind of environmental orderliness is supposed to look like, um, and in, in so doing, they're also forced to kind of show what kind of social order they imagine to be uh, inhabiting that that environment, right? So we we learn not just like what belongs where, but who belongs where, um, and you know the kitchen is for the housewife, um, the street is for the the kind of able-bodied worker, not the child, um, not the elderly person, right? Um, and so uh, these visions of hygienic order are also tied to a kind of envision, a vision of a social order that is patriarchal, ableist in a lot of ways. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we'd want to be be I think careful about uh, about importing it into our into our moment. That that's a very useful and sobering corrective. Um, to my kind of having let myself get nostalgic for something which I think no, I, is really I totally dangerous. I get it, though. Uh, I, yeah, I, we could we could certainly use uh, some of this. I think um, uh, desire to like make our just make our spaces healthier. Totally, that surely is innocuous enough. Yeah, um, I mean, I maybe as we start to wind down our discussion of the book, I can come back to something I, I brought up earlier, which is the you know thinking about the the offshoot of the hygienic apparatus that kind of folds itself neatly into national socialism. Um, and here in, in the book, you discuss it with um, the, the film Bluten Bowden. 
on soil. And um, I'm, that's clearly only one, you know, having this regulatory hygienic regime of ordering environments doesn't have to lead to fascism, but it may lead to fascism. Or I wondered if you could kind of, um, you know, talk about what, uh, and here I'm thinking of your use of Detlef Poikert, for example, in his essay on the spirit of science, um, sort of in what ways this kind of set of practices and discourses is generative of fascist solutions and in what ways it's kind of part of the larger, part, part of larger capitalist modernity um, in the West. Right. So, yeah, so I, I kind of use that, that this, this early Nazi film, um, Blood and Soil, uh, as a as a kind of marker to end end the book, um, where uh, the, this film is about uh, kind of rejecting the the urban um, in favor of the land, right, um, and and envisioning the uh, expansion of the German people like into the into the land um, and developing it productively and and this sort of thing, um, and to me that marks a kind of break with. This vision of modernity that the this earlier hygienic apparatus had had envisioned, which was very allied to urbanization, um, and tried to basically envision the the city as the site of modernity, as the site of development, um, but making it healthy. Um, there's so there's this idea that we can kind of reform the city to be this this healthy space of of capitalist development. Um, but what happens right uh, is a, an economic crisis that sort of takes the takes the floor out of that, you know, out from underneath it um, and constrains that vision. It makes it basically impossible. Um, and so uh, in the absence of that, um, this is when eugenic ideas start to really gain a lot of steam um, because it's it's much cheaper to kind of like uh, distinguish very strongly between deserving and undeserving as opposed to like remaking the environment in, in such a way that it like benefits a kind of mass of people. Um, and so there's kind of, I'd, I'd say like two different kinds of biopolitics operating in those two different models, right. In the kind of pre-fascist and then fascist moments. Um, but both are, I mean, they both are concerned with, like developing the population about a concern with fitness in a certain way. Um, it's just that the, uh, and I don't think that the, the former necessarily leads to the latter by any means. Um, but, uh, but you see the way in which such a, 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 like a vision that maybe looks more kind of collective and, uh, and innocuous when it encounters the constraints of capitalism, like when there's a crisis, um, it doesn't really hold up, uh, and it doesn't really like uh, keep you know keep operating, and, and it doesn't. Uh, it really is only possible under a certain um, sense of economic well-being, um, and when that goes away, um, it it uh, easily kind of makes way for much more violent forms of of biopolitics. I think that's a great place to end our discussion of, of your book. And I'm really grateful that you've given us so much time today. Um, I think what I'd, I'd like to give you a chance to talk a little bit about new projects and give us a sense of some of the issues that you're working on right now in your current research. Sure. Thank you. Um, so uh, one chapter in the book actually deals with um, images of disability and aging um, in both both kind of nonfiction pedagogical films and uh, and some fiction films 
of the Weimar Republic. Um, and this came out of, of the, thinking about the ways in which um, hygiene imagined environments for certain kinds of bodies, right? Particularly the, the laboring productive body, um, whether that's the kind of home domestic labor or um, the kind of more male dominated sphere of uh, like wage labor. Um, and this, so it, it's, it's not a vision that accommodates um, disability uh, or other kinds of kind of embodied difference very well. Um, and, and, I've, the the book kind of takes a more bodily turn, I would say, uh, as it as it progresses. Um, and my so my current work is really focused on thinking about um, disability in film during the Weimar Republic, um, and thinking about the the twenties, especially as a kind of period of particular anxiety around able-bodiedness. Right. So um, if the the able body is kind of defined. Um, by, you know, what it means to labor under a certain um, economic, political, technological regime. Um, modernity is always changing that. Um, and so there's like a lot of um, room for anxiety about what constitutes able-bodiedness or, or able-mindedness. Um, and uh, so I have an essay on um, the Fritz Lang film M, uh, which reads the film in, in terms of this anxiety about able-bodiedness uh, and the ability to identify or not identify it in public. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm currently working on an essay on uh, Bella Balash's The Visible Man, which is a, an early book of film theory, um, which is thinks about film from the perspective of the body, um, but in a lot of its language is kind of constructing this vision of a new kind of visible human being against an image of the of the disabled body. Um, but there's also a kind of interesting fascination there with the kind of um, non-normative bodily possibilities of film. Um, and so I think uh, I'm pursuing this kind of hypothesis that that uh, the the 20s is is a is a period of anxiety around able-bodiedness and uh, film is playing a role in that um, because it's, it's redefining what, what it means to be kind of part of culture. Um, it's redefining how the body is seen in certain ways. Um, and so um, uh, I'm trying to think about those, those two things together. Well, that's great. I look forward to seeing the results of some of this new work. It sounds like you're picking up on some of the themes here and then pushing them in new directions, which um, I really look forward to seeing. Thank you. So I, I really want to thank you for your time today. I want to remind everybody that uh, The Hygienic Apparatus, Weimar Cinema and Environmental Disorder was published by Northwestern University Press. You can purchase it through the press or wherever you buy books. And uh, Paul, once again, I want to thank you for spending so much time with me today. And I've really learned so much from your book and have enjoyed so much uh, this opportunity to engage with the ideas in it. Thank you. It was uh, really nice talking to you.